Now, if you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, we are continuing our series there called Living Hope. And um, in my earlier year, early years in the, in the business world, I worked for an, a startup company in Albuquerque, and we were just a bunch of young professionals that like, worked really hard, enjoyed success, but we enjoyed working together as well. It was a really fun environment. There was usually a lot of banter going on in the office back and forth. Uh, one of my coworkers, though, was an unbeliever. Well, many of my coworkers were unbelievers, but one in particular would always have this dialogue with me. He's always asking questions and challenging me, and it sharpened me in my faith, because I had to go dig up the answers to some of these tough questions. But every now and then, he'd just kind of take a cheap shot. He'd say, well, Christianity is just a crutch for the weak. And, and it's a popular sentiment among unbelievers. In fact, Jesse Ventura, the professional wrestler turned governor of Minnesota and, and now retired from that, he said something similar. He said, organized religion is a sham and a crutch for the weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. That's what he said. Well, over the years in my workplace there in Albuquerque, I had an opportunity to show my coworkers just how difficult some of the things are that God calls us to as believers. And he saw that, and it was a testimony to him. He and many of his family have come to know the Lord. But at one point, I sent him an email, and it included a, a verse from the passage that we're studying this morning. And I think it's one of the most challenging passages in Scripture. This will challenge us deeply. It's, it's simple in principle, but it's very difficult and challenging in practice. And so the message title this morning is High Standards of Christian Conduct. And we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. And the outline has four parts, but just five words this morning. First, abstain in verses 11 and 12. Second, submit in verses 13 through 17. Third, bear up in verses 18 through 20. And finally, because, in verses 21 through 25. So those four sections, and we'll just read through it a section at a time because it's a little uh, longer text this morning. But we'll start with this word abstain in verses 11 and 12. Let's read through that. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Well, this is the first instruction to these persecuted believers scattered throughout uh, the continent of Asia. And right off the bat, I want you to notice the way Peter addresses these persecuted Christians. It's not to whom it may concern, it's dear friends. Or the ESV translates it, beloved. And in his writing, you see that. But also, you see the Apostle Paul and John so many times addressing their readers as my dear children. And the thing that we have to recognize is this isn't just a letter from the apostles to the churches. This is a letter from God to us, to you. And if the apostles cared this much for those believers, how much more do you think our heavenly father cares and loves us? 
Some Christians imagine God as being this angry deity, and they're just waiting for the shoe to drop. And God's judgment is a real thing. That's part of his character. But if you are in Christ, he is not angry at you. You're no longer his enemy. You're his child. He loves you. He thinks of you as dear children, beloved. And so as we work through this challenging text, keep in mind that these are God's words to you. Dear children, beloved of the Lord. So verse 1 begins, dear friends. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. This gets pretty challenging right off the bat as he writes, abstain from sinful desires. Our society would say, no, indulge in sinful desires. Go for it. You deserve it. Go all out. But God doesn't tell us Uh, to abstain from every desire here. He tells us to abstain from sinful desires. And in some translations, you might see in their fleshly desires. Fleshly desires would be those things that are part of our old nature, often referred to in scripture as our flesh, the things which are opposed to our new nature, the spirit. And when you hear that, especially when you hear, hear abstain, abstinence, you know what you think of right away, right? Sexual temptation, sexual sin, and that's certainly one of them, but it's not the only fleshly desire. There's pride, greed, selfishness, rage, drunkenness, and on and on. All of these are the works of the flesh, and they're in opposition to the works of the Spirit. And it's easy to see the impact that these sinful desires, fleshly desires have on our physical bodies. It can be quite destructive. Just look at the effects of drug addiction or alcohol or obesity or sexually transmitted diseases or some of these other things. It's easy to relate to the way our sinful desires war against our physical body, but this isn't talking about that. It's saying that they war against our soul. That's an interesting thought. It's a little harder to see that, but it's nonetheless just as destructive. So when something Wars, wars against our soul. It tears away at our values. It, our priorities, our relationships with others, our commitment to the Lord, our Christian witness. It tears all of those down. And before long, the things of the Lord don't seem as important to us as these fleshly desires war against our soul. Think about what happened to the nation of Israel when they were surrounded by these pagan nations. These pagan nations with their fleshly desires infiltrated and conquered Israel. And it resulted in their destruction spiritually as well as physically, right? And so um, these things are warring against our soul, our new nature. You know the popular saying, when in Rome... Do as the Romans do, right, do as the Romans do. In other words, you should emulate the immoral behavior of the people around you. But God's instruction is clear. He says, when in Rome, don't live like the Romans. Instead, live like aliens and strangers in the world. That might seem a little strange, but what he's saying is, you need to realize that you're not one of them. You're not because your citizenship is in heaven. So you can't think like them. You can't act like them. You can't have the same priorities as those people of the world. 
Now, you know you're a temporary resident of planet dirt, as, as Dieter Happel used to sign all of his stuff. I love that. Dieter Happel, temporary resident of planet dirt. Dieter Happel's in his permanent residence with the Lord right now. But yet, we are citizens of heaven. And so we're not, to, we're not to think, we're not to act like the world around us. And verse 12 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. One of the temptations we face as Christians can be to blend in to the culture. We don't want to stand out because if we stand out, somebody could take shots at us. They could actually accuse us of things, attack us, ridicule us. And so some people want to kind of be stealthy Christians. But as citizens of heaven, we should never blend in to the world. We should stand out, in fact. And even if that causes people to accuse us of wrongdoing. The early church faced all kinds of accusations. Let me just tell you about some of them. They were accused of being, of, of being antisocial because they wouldn't participate in the pagan and immoral festivals of the Greco-Roman culture. They were accused of being atheists and bringing about the national disasters such as floods and fires and famine because they wouldn't honor the Roman gods. They were accused of ritual cannibalism. Antagonists said that when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, they were drinking the sacrificed blood of babies. They were accused of gross immorality because of the way they loved their brothers and sisters. They said that their love feasts were actually wild orgies. And they were accused by Nero, the emperor himself, of being terrorists and starting the great fire of 64 AD that burned for days in Rome. They were accused of a lot of different things. But it didn't stop them. It didn't stop them from doing what was right and good, even though society labeled it as evil. They didn't, they didn't conform to the pagan nation around them like the, like the nation of Israel did. Why not? Well, for one, they had a, a new weapon in their arsenal. See, they had been set free from sin. Set free from sin, and they had the Spirit of God within them, empowering them, leading them as they went forward. So, do Christians today ever get falsely accused of things? You ever run into that? Yep. Here's some that I hear. We're accused of being ignorant if we believe that this Bible is the word of God. We're accused of being anti-science if we don't believe in evolution. Intolerant haters if we don't embrace homosexuality. And on and on. Christians today are accused falsely as well. I believe these are all attempts by the enemy to try to get us to conform to the pattern of this world or at least to blend in, not stand out. I wouldn't want to stand out. I wouldn't want somebody accusing me of those things. So if we're fearful, we're going we're gonna to try to blend in, and that's not what God is calling us to do here. But what he is calling us to do is to abstain, to hold back from the fleshly desires which war against our soul. You might feel at times, I know I do, you might feel at times like it's a losing battle because we're not changing the minds of the culture. Their opposition to us is just getting stronger and stronger. So why should I stand up for what I believe in? Well, look what verse 12 says. It says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
they see your good deeds. Whether they acknowledge it or not, they see your good deeds. And I, I told you about my son's coworker who said that he has a healthy disdain for my son's wholesomeness. <laughs> now, he sees that wholesomeness, and I think there's a part of him that even desires that. This man's had a, a lifelong, uh, he doesn't see it, see it as a struggle, but a struggle with drugs. You know, but he looks at my son, and, and there's something he sees there, even though he doesn't acknowledge it, a wholesomeness. Well, God says that this witness can have a future impact through the changing of hearts on what it says on the day he visits us. Now, this could refer to a personal encounter that a person has with God, or it could be the ultimate day when Christ returns. But either way, it says that your witness has a role in this. Look how closely connected these two things are. They may see your good deeds and glorify God. See, Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 5. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let's, let's make that verse even more personal. Take the word your in, in uh, this Matthew text, or rather in, in our text, and substitute your name in there, that they may see Bob's good deeds, John's good deeds, Steve's good deeds, Sarah's good deeds, Brenda's good deeds, and glorify your God in heaven. So, the whole point is that we should be living our lives in such a way that it is a compelling testimony to Jesus Christ. So what kind of good deeds are they talking about? Well, he's going to lay them out for us, a lot of them, and these are not easy. These are tough, they're challenging, they're high standards. Let's look secondly at this command to submit in verses 4 through, nope, that's wrong, in verses 13 through 17. Beginning in 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. In our society, the word submit, I think, is probably even less popular than the word abstain. People have a reaction to that. Probably that fleshly thing going on there. Many people feel that the word submit signifies some kind of weakness or inferiority or surrender. And they don't like that. It's much more popular these days to resist than to submit. You see a lot of logos like this, resist, and a fist there. You know, it's trying to communicate that this is strength. A strong person doesn't submit to anything. They resist. But we're commanded in this and other passages of Scripture to submit, and not for ourselves. It says, but for the Lord's sake. Why for the Lord's sake? Because our Christian conduct reflects upon Christ. When we're rebellious in our conduct, we're bringing dishonor to Christ. Because that's not the image he wants to project to the world. And we're going to see more of that in uh, verses 21 through 25 in a minute. So 
what must we submit to? Look at what it says. Every authority instituted among men, or in the ESV, every human institution. Oh, but that couldn't possibly mean the opposing political people that are out there that don't share my value. Every authority instituted by men. But not every authority instituted by men. Think about some of the authorities in your life. Most people will group them into four categories. Um, there's, first of all, government authority. And Peter's letter is going to cover all four of these. Government authority, whether national, state, local. Uh, second is business authority. Third is family. Fourth is church. I'd add that there's even a social authority there in different organizations that you might be a part of. Coaches, referees, and social settings. They're all part of authority um, in, in our society. Yet right after this passage talks about how important it is to live a godly life for the sake of Christ, it jumps headlong into this topic of authority. And it says to submit to authority. I think the reason those two are so closely connected is it speaks to our resistance to authority. Our our flesh wants to resist that authority. We have a strong desire to want to govern ourselves, to want to do things our way. We don't want to take, we don't want to do what anybody says. We don't want to have to follow them. We want to do our thing. Well, we'll follow them if they agree with us. But otherwise, we just have this resistance. We have a, a, a desire for self-legislation, you could call it. But Isaiah 53, it talks about this. It says, for we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has gone his own way. No, I'm going my way. I'm not going to listen to anybody. I want to do what I want to do. You know, John Lennon wrote that song, Imagine. Remember that? And he envisioned a world without government authority. And he envisioned a world without religious authority, in his words, and a world even without personal property. And he said, imagine all the people living life in peace. I don't know what he was on when he wrote that. But you get rid of government authority and all these other authority structures in society, you're not going to have peace. You're going to have chaos and destruction as you unleash the evil in the human heart. God knew that. That's why he instituted authority. So first up, he talks about submitting to government authority. This one's kind of a tender spot for some people. Look at the end of verse 13 and end of verse 14. Whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So this would include national, state, local, judges, police officers. They're all part of this government authority. And authority, government authority, is not the work of the enemy. This is the work of God. He established the principle of hierarchical authority to govern society. Now, does that mean that All governments operate according to his will? No, sadly it doesn't. Governments don't always operate according to God's will, but they operate by his will because he instituted it. Listen to what Romans 13 says in verses 1 and 2. He said, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. 
Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. How much authority is there outside of what God instituted? None. God instituted all authority. And so he established the principle of government, even though not all government leaders submit to his will. He still upholds that in the same way as God instituted marriage, even though not every husband and wife treats each other in a godly way. God still instituted that relationship. Yeah, but God never meant for this to apply to the ungodly officials like we have today. No? Well, actually, the government at the time was far more corrupt than anything we have in this country today. It was filled with tyrants. There was no representative government. There was no Bill of Rights. People didn't get to vote. It wasn't a democracy. There was no free speech. Caesar was the ruler, and he made the rules. Whatever rules he wanted to make. Every year, Roman citizens would have to come stand before an altar and proclaim, take an oath that Caesar is Lord, God. And of course, this created a problem for the Christians. They had a tax system that was crushing the people. Now, there was one group that was so worked up over this government oppression that they formed a counter-political movement and they refused to pay taxes and they were like a terrorist group that would actually attack and kill their oppressors. That group is the Zealots. Remember them? The Zealots. This was a Jewish religious group. And they used scripture to justify their opposition to government. They, they point to Deuteronomy 17, 15, which says, Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. What I was talking about when God had them appoint their own king. But they applied this passage, and so they opposed the Roman government. They refused to pay taxes. They were like this band of marauders that tried to overthrow the government. This is the world Jesus came into. And guess what? The Jews expected him to overthrow the government for them. But he didn't. Jesus never protested the government or picketed or campaigned. He never marched on Rome. He never refused to pay taxes. He never mounted an insurrection. It's interesting that among Jesus' choices of disciples, there was Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. He had both extremes as his disciples, and he began to show them his way of doing things. And it did not involve the overthrow of Rome. He said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, keep in mind that it was the Roman government, along with the Jewish leaders, that put Jesus to death. And did he resist? No. He submitted. Verses 21 through 25, we're going to make that very point at the end. Now, by the time that Peter penned this letter to these persecuted Christians, Nero was the emperor. He was one of the worst. He led the first government-sponsored persecution of Christians. He had tens of thousands of Christians put to death. He's the one that blamed the great Roman fire on the Christians. 
even though many officials locally believed that Nero said it himself in burning some stuff down to build a new and bigger palace, but he blamed it on the Christians. He's the one that drove them from their homes. He's the reason they're scattered and, and the occasion on which Peter is writing this letter. So in light of that, what does God's word say to those persecuted Christians? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Wow. These words are pretty hard to swallow for 21st century Americans, aren't they? But this is the word of God. Here's the thing. You can't live in an obedience to God while living in resistance to authority. You cannot. This is a high standard of Christian character, and it should differentiate us as Christians from an unbelieving world. So there, is there a limit to our submission to authority? There is. There is a limit. The limit to our submission is when the instruction of man violates the word of God. If government tries to force Christians to do something that God explicitly forbids, we can't do that. If God forces Christians to avoid something that God tells us to do, we can't follow that. Because in those cases, like Acts 5.29 says, we're to obey God, not men. If the government were to say, you may not worship God, or you may not read your Bible, or you may not gather and pray together, or you must worship the president, we can't submit to that because that violates the, the, the word of God. But it violates an explicit instruction of God. And so we'd have to go against that, just like Daniel had to go against the, the, the national leaders, Nebuchadnezzar, but he did so with respect and honor for the king. If the government should say, you have to wear a mask in public, I'm sorry, but I don't think that rises to the level of an explicit command of God. The clear command of God is to submit to the governing authorities. Do I like that? No. But that's what the word says. And this, again, should differentiate us from an unbelieving world. Well, what if the government mandates a COVID vaccine? Then what do we do? Well, I don't like the idea of a mandated vaccine. I feel like that's government overreach. And I'm not personally for that. But you know what? I am for the word of God. And it says that I must submit to the governing authorities. But what if that impacts my health? Let me ask you, when Jesus submitted to the government authorities, did it impact his health? Yeah, it cost him his life. So me personally, should that become mandated? What am I going to do? I'm going to submit to the governing authorities in obedience to God, and I'm going to leave the results in his hands. I'm going to sleep sound at night because I'm following the Lord. I'm being obedient. So again, if it's not an explicit command of God, well then our, the clear command is to submit. I know that's kind of hard to, hard to hear. If you want to hear more about what the Bible has to say about government and politics, the role of government, let me just point you to a series we did about five years ago in a message titled, uh, Where Christ and Culture Meet on Politics. 
And you'll find a lot of information there. You'll find it on our website under the Messages tab, or if you have trouble finding it, just call or email the office and we'll send you a link to that. But it dives into it a lot more than we can in the time we have this morning. But verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. These are strong words in the original language, to silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. It literally means to muzzle them like you would muzzle an animal. We might say uh, in, in our culture, like, duct tape their mouth shut. That's kind of the strength of what this is saying. Well, Titus 2.8 says to do good so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. We're going to go on to see in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, he said, don't return evil for evil, but overcome evil with what? Good, with good. This, again, is a high standard of Christian character. Verse 16, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Now, we just talked about our responsibility to submit to every authority, and now it says to live as free men. And the verse ends, live as servants of God. Aren't those contradictory statements in there? I mean, how can I be free if everyone else is telling me what to do? How can I be a free man and a servant of God at the same time? Kind of confusing. But I think somebody had a quote that I really like. William Barclay, I think, summed this up really well. He said, Christian freedom does not mean being free to do as we like. It means being free to do as we ought. I would say amen to that. I don't agree with everything Barclay wrote or said, but this I agree with strongly. Paul wrote this to the Romans. He said, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Free from one so that you can serve God in righteousness. So we're to live as free men. And it says in verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. One of the things that bothers me is the growing disrespect in our society for all types of authority. Children can pick up on it early in life when they see their parents dressing down a teacher or a coach or a referee. It's not wrong to disagree with someone, but while disagreeing, we must still honor and respect those people, especially in the eyes of our children. You know, I don't think that was the right thing for the coach to do, but we're gonna respect him because he's the coach, he's the authority. We need to reinforce that. Now we're seeing a rapid decline in respect for police officers. The scenes of people taunting officers and even dumping water on their heads, they're really disturbing to me because it represents a society that's moving ever closer to anarchy and lawlessness. We're to show proper respect to everyone this is what verse 17 is addressing. And you'll find four different groups there. The first one is everyone. That's just in case anyone overlooks, gets overlooked in the next three. He starts out with everyone. And then there's the brotherhood of believers. That's the church. Then there's God. And finally, the king. Back in my corporate days, we used to have a, a slogan that we would kind of chide. and We'd say about our competitors, we'd say, Price, service, quality, pick any two. <laughs> See, we, we were saying they can't deliver on all three of those. You, you, you're either going to get price and no quality and good service, or 
Well, here we have four, and we don't get to pick just two of four. We don't get to pick three of four. God is expecting all four. And so let's look at them. First, we're to show proper respect to everyone. Unless, of course, they give us poor service or lose our reservation or put us on hold too long or they work for the Department of Motor Vehicles, then we don't have to, right? No. (laughs) It says for everyone. After all, people don't have to earn our respect. We like to say that. Well, they need to earn our respect. No. God says that every human being deserves a level of respect. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. That's why. Back when Peter wrote this, slaves were not even considered human beings. They had no rights in Rome. And women had hardly any rights at all. God has a much higher standard for mankind. We're to show respect for everyone. Next, love the brotherhood of believers. That's a church. We just talked about that. Loving one another and our, and our responsibility to one another as a family of faith. Jesus said, by this, your love for one another, will all men out there know that you're my disciples if you love one another. We're to fear God. We said many times that doesn't mean we're to be afraid of God in the sense we normally think of fear. It's a reverential awe that produces humble submission to a loving God. So there you see that submission again. And then finally, we're to honor the king. Not just submit, but honor the king. This is, I think, even harder. See, it's more than an outward action. It's an inward attitude. I struggle with this more. I can do what the king says. I can pay my taxes, but I can have a pretty bad attitude (laughs) as I'm writing that check. I can see the memes of some of our political leaders and laugh and pass and talk disparagingly about them. I never saw Joseph do that in scripture. I never saw Daniel do that. God says to honor, respect the king. I heard about a little boy who was standing up on the bus and the bus driver told him, young man, you must sit down. If I have to hit the brakes, suddenly you'll fly forward and be hurt. And he goes, no. And she said, please, dear, have a seat. And he just adamantly, no. So she pulled the bus over, got up, walked back to the little boy. And as she got close, he sat down. And he begrudgingly sat down. And he said, I may be sitting down outwardly, but I'm standing up inwardly. Yeah, see, his, his, his action was sit down, but his attitude was stand up. How often are we like that when we... Look at our government authorities, the king, the leaders of our country. We might do what they say, but we can have the wrong attitude. And so God's calling us out on this. We can be submitting outwardly, but rebelling inwardly. We can talk about them disparagingly. I'm guilty of that. We need to be careful how we talk about our government authorities. Again, it's not wrong to disagree with them, but we still need to pray for them and we need to honor them. That's the command of God. 
Let's look at this next section then. That's submit. Now, thirdly, it says bear up in verses 18 and 20. Now, he's going to ratchet it up a notch as the focus moves from government authority to what I'm calling business authority. Now, it's spoken of in the context of slaves and masters, or in some translations, servants and masters. It says in verse 18, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. These are hard words, but you should know, first of all, that the slavery spoken of here is not a forced race-based slavery like we've had in recent centuries. It was a voluntary economic-based servitude. People of all races would sell themselves into slavery when they couldn't pay a debt or provide for their family. And this was the, the backbone of the labor, the workforce for, for, for Rome. And so, no doubt though, there were, there were powers that tried to keep them pressed into that mode of of servitude, economic powers that tried to keep them there. The Bible neither condemns nor condones this type of slavery, but it speaks to it. It addresses it because it was commonplace at the time. And so it speaks to how slaves are to treat their masters or servants their masters and masters their servants. And we can apply these principles in our own context to employees and employers. Some masters treated their slaves well. Almost like family members, verse 18 speaks of masters who were good and considerate. Like in Luke's gospel where the man's, the centurion's servant was paralyzed and hurting and he runs to Jesus and pleads with them to heal his servant. But then others were not. Some were harsh, it says. They treated their slaves like a piece of property. Well, Aristotle in the fourth century, he was a Greek philosopher. He said, a slave is a living tool and a tool is an inanimate thing. There could be no friendship or justice towards inanimate things such as a slave. This is the environment in which Peter writes, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. Now, if that's God's instruction to people in that environment, what do you think he would say to us as workers today? What should our attitude be toward our employees or employers? How should we be viewing our jobs? In 1977, Johnny Paycheck released a song. I might be dating myself. You probably remember it, though. Take this job and shove it. (laughs) You, You remember it. It's all about how disgruntled he is. He's critical of his bosses and co-workers and and so he's trying to get the courage to say take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. That's what the lyric says. Well if that's our attitude toward our employer, what are our actions going to be like? Probably not right. Now if we're working at a job, how many of you love your jobs? I'm looking for people that work here at Riverside, too. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Blow the hands up. Thank you. Now, I can't say I loved my job in the corporate world for 30 years. I tolerated it. I can't say I love it. But I think God's instruction to us would be, until I call you somewhere else, take this job and love it. Love the people 
Love your coworkers. Love your employers with a Christ-like love. Show them what Jesus Christ looks like. If you want to look more at this topic of Christianity in the workplace, oop, I'm behind her. Um, we, we did a series just last year in Colossians, and one of the messages was titled uh, Work Life. In Colossians 3.22 through 4.1, you'll find that out on the website also, and you can dig into that in more detail if you're interested. We need to take this job and love it. We need to treat people in our workplace with the love of Christ, no matter how they treat us. Consider it kind, harsh, or love them. But now, it gets even harder. Verse 19, for it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is commendable before God. That's a hard verse. This is a really high standard. Have you ever suffered unjustly? Have you ever had somebody make false accusations against you that maybe cost you your job? Have you maybe had somebody do something where it cost you your health or maybe the life of a loved one because of their actions? That would be suffering unjustly. And no matter what level you've experienced, you've experienced it at some level and you know how deeply painful this can be. And you know that in our flesh, we like nothing more than to seek vengeance to Settle the score to get even, right? I heard about a driver who was waiting for a parking space to open up in the parking lot. And he had his signal on and the car pulled out. But before he could get in there, another car come in the other direction, whipped in there and took his parking spot. What did he do? He went and found another parking spot. And then he came back and let all the air out of the guy's tires. (laughs) Now we hear that and we go, yeah, right on. Teachable moment. He got his, right? I feel that. (laughs) Being honest, that's my fleshly desire. But that's not what we're to do. God says it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. That should be our motivation, our awareness of God. It means having faith in the fact that God knows what's going on. He sees it. He's a just judge. He's sovereign. He's good. And he will take care of us. No matter what harm might seem to come our way, God will use it for a good. That's what it means to be conscious of God. It was about six years ago, almost exactly, that a 21-year-old man, Dylan Roof, walked into Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and opened up fire in a Bible study, killing nine of the people there in a, mo- in a racially motivated crime. And Ruth said this afterwards, I'd like to make it crystal clear. I do not regret what I did. I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. Just 48 hours after the shooting, many of the family members of the victims were in a courtroom for Ruth's bond hearing. Nadine Collier, she lost her mom, and she was the first to speak. And choking back tears, she stood up and she said, quote, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And I have mercy on your soul. 
Several other family members followed suit and stood up 48 hours after those murders and they spoke words of forgiveness to the unrepentant young man who killed their loved ones. Imagine the unjust suffering that these dear people experienced. And yet they endured it. They did not retaliate. And they did it for the sake of Christ. I hope we never have to face something like that. But this is what God calls us to. And this is a high standard. What's remarkable to me is that I haven't read anything about riots following in the days after those killings in Charleston. There were prayer vigils. There was a march of solidarity, but I saw nothing about riots. It's as if those people and the stand they took set an example for the community. If those family members can do that, who am I to lash out in anger? They set a strong example, and they did it because they were conscious of Christ. Well, let's talk quickly about the last portion here. Number four, because, in verses 21 through 25. I don't know about you, but with the teaching this hard, I need a reason. I need a because. And here it is. Verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There can be no greater injustice than what Christ endured. He was the only sinless man ever. And the penalty for our sin, moreover, our sin itself was placed upon him. Look at what verse 21 says. Christ suffered for you. Christ suffered for me. Not them, for you and for me. He bore the penalty for our sins. And how did he respond to this incredible injustice? This, this injustice was infinitely greater than anything you and I will ever endure. Infinitely greater. And how did he respond? Verse 23, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, and he did suffer, it says he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Why? Why would he do that? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, it says. So that you and I might be healed. That's why he did it. This is the most unimaginable act of love, mercy, and grace that the world could ever know. Now think back to the pagans that accuse you of doing wrong to the politicians that you oppose, to the people who falsely accuse you of doing wrong, to those who cause you to suffer unjustly. How are you ever going to get them to see this incredible thing that God has done and to change their heart and their mind? 
How are you going to do that? Simple. God says, let them see Christ in you. Let them see Christ in you. He says he left you an example that you should follow in his steps. No longer going astray our own way, but following the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. He comes right back to Isaiah 53 that we talked about. We all like sheep have gone astray. But he said, no more, folks. You've come back to the shepherd of your souls. Follow him. Walk in his footsteps. Follow his example. Be Christ to those people. Submit to their authority. Do not retaliate. Show them loving kindness. Where are we going to find it in ourselves to do that? We're not. It's not in us, but he's in us. The spirit of Christ is in you. If you've been redeemed, you have his power and you have the ability to live out the godly life that he calls us to. That's the high standard of Christian character. That's our calling. That's what you and I are to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, when I think about what you've done, and then I think about what I've done, how I've responded to people who've hurt me, my actions, my attitudes, all I can say is, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. Help me to die to this sin. Help me to put it to death, God, so I might live for righteousness. Give me the power to do this by your spirit. Lord, I want the world to see Jesus in me. I want this for your kingdom and for your glory. And so I cry out to you for this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.